Hello, and welcome back to Jetra Buddhist Monastery. Today we have a lot of ground to cover, so I want to get to where we stopped and continue from there as soon as possible. I do hope, as I asked you last week, that by this point you are fully aboard with some of the important, the key points that we discussed last week. But of course, no talk is ever complete before we take a moment, or without having taken a moment, to pay homage to the teacher, to the teacher, the most noble one, the infinitely compassionate one, the perfect one, the enlightened one, the fully awakened one, the Supreme Buddha. Because it is he who discovered this and it is he who encouraged us and taught us the path and guided us to get to the ultimate end of the ultimate journey. So before we begin, let us take a moment to pay homage to the Lord Buddha. And as soon as we've done that, let us continue from where we left off last week. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Last week, we discussed the difference between a conventional truth and an absolute truth through various examples. We know that a conventional truth is one that is only true until the system, within air quotes, or the convention, the people who have agreed to that or such convention, accept it and acknowledge it. Conventional truths Conventional truths are always changeable. They're not deterministic. They fluctuate. They can change like the weather. All it requires is for the same people of the same community, perhaps a person, an individual, or a group of people, some or other, a community, a collection, to come to a convention. Whereas an absolute truth is true regardless of what people think or believe it is. Gravity is not a conventional truth. It's an absolute truth. Gravity existed and exerted itself on all things within its grasp, even before, well before gravity was discovered as a force acting on all bodies. Whereas a convention is not such. It only comes alive. It only becomes true when 
such convention has become accepted. Now, I know this may be oversimplifying this, and you'll probably be thinking, yes, Bhante, we understand what a convention is. Agreed. But I am also conscious that there are people of all ages and all levels who engage with us. And I know this because of the feedback that I get from you. Not personally, but the feedback that you send through to the program. So I know that there are young children from age six, seven, on to more mature people of society, 60s, 70s. So I remain duty-bound to help and support as best I can people of all ages who join us. So I do hope that on some occasions you will forgive me for perhaps maybe simplifying things more than they need to be. Anyhow, we were discussing a conventional truth and the absolute truth. Now, as I said, gravity is a good example of an absolute truth because it, require, it does not require anyone, absolutely anyone, to agree of its existence. And it is not something that can be brought into existence by a group of people. And therefore, it is not something that can be ceased to exist by a group of people. Whereas a convention is not the same. The lifetime of a convention is entirely determined by those who spawn it. Its birth and its death are both in the hands of those who bring such conventions into life. This war and peace on convention and absolute truth relates to us on our journey to ultimate happiness because if we shape and design our happiness on conventional truths, you must now begin to understand the fundamental problem there. If, for instance, I'm happy because you call me by my name, and should you call me by another name, that would upset me. Do you see the problem there? It's a conventional truth. Someone may have misheard your name, perhaps. And that could upset people. I know of people who hate it, absolutely hate it, when someone mispronounces their name. Do you know someone like that? Some people can be offended if someone gets their title wrong. For instance, if, you're, if you call by yourself by a title of doctor or professor or sergeant or colonel or lieutenant, and if someone gets that wrong, some people find that offensive. Some people find that quite upsetting, unsettling even. So you see, if you allow your happiness to depend on conventional truths, that is not a happiness that is in your control. Why? Because those conventions are not things that were entirely, wholly defined and invented by yourself. Remember this, like your life depends on it, because it does, you know, for some people, life only is meaningful 
for as long as there's happiness in it. And if their happiness can be stolen from them, then inevitably there comes a point where someone decides, that's it, enough of it. Right? You know what I'm talking about. This was the very reason I at some point had to do a talk. For those individuals who might consider taking their life offing with themselves. Before they choose to do that, I invited them to watch that talk in the hope that it may bring some light to the situation. So anyhow, we must understand and appreciate that if at any point we hang our happiness on the hooks, that is a conventional truth, we hand over the keys of our happiness to somebody else. And then after that, you're at their mercy. That cannot be ultimate happiness, that cannot be independent happiness, and that cannot be unconditional happiness. You obviously see that there are conditions to that happiness. Now think for a moment as to why a lot of people suffer. People you know, by first name, and people you know of, acquaintances, or maybe just strangers, just the general population, the general public, look around you and see why people suffer. I'm not referring to physical reasons such as hunger or poverty, sickness, or perhaps being homeless. I'm not referring to these things. Those are provisions that have to be satisfied through the four requisites. As I, as a monk, require the four requisites for my sustenance. We all do, even the Buddha did. So, whilst he laid down rules of conduct for us monks, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, on the use of such requisites, he never forbade us from using them, because as human beings, there are certain things that are necessary to sustain life. So, putting that to aside, just think for a moment about why people suffer. I think you'll agree with me that 90%, if not more, of people's unhappiness, suffering, is related not to physical requisites. They're more to do with mental necessities. An ailing mind is one that is attached to something and it's yearning for it, it's crying for it, it's weeping for it, and that it is generally a convention. It could be freedom, for instance. That's a convention, isn't it? How do you know you're free? How do you know you're free? Is it not through convention? Can I look at you and tell you whether you're free or not? Is it something that I can observe just by looking at you? You might have handcuffs on you. Does that mean you're not free? What if you put it on by yourself? Perhaps for fun or maybe just to imitate. Perhaps you're acting a part in a movie. So I couldn't look at you and tell you if you were free. By that, what, we, what I mean is, freedom is a conventional truth. 
I don't mean about ultimate freedom, which is where we are going to get as we go on this journey together. Conventional truth. But are there people who suffer emotionally because they feel that they are not free, because they feel that someone has taken away their freedom? Think about it. And people fight for their freedom. And I've got nothing against them. So this is not a criticism of any sort. All I'm saying is, let's look at the truth here. Let's look at the principles here. Let's look at the underlying, this, the, the, the underlying current of reality. Whether fighting for freedom is right or wrong, and that is not the point of my argument, it is inevitably, undeniably, a conventional entity. Freedom is a conventional entity. So, you decide that you are free. You can decide that you are not free. You could change that every day if you wanted. We even discussed a few examples last week about what you call yourself. Your rank, your position, your profession. The status that you hold in society. Whether you're a beggar or you're an aristocrat. Someone who's well-to-do. This is all to do with convention. You don't agree? Well, let's say you've got lots of money on you. Lots of cash, real cash. And perhaps even property. Movable and immovable property. If I were to come along and say, that all that you got there, it's worthless. You can't tell me that I don't have any power or authority to do that. I don't mean myself as, a, as Bhante. I mean, it's a conventional value that is attributed to these things, aren't they? Is, it that, is that not why they get traded on the stock market? Is that why you have bear markets and bull markets how when things go up and down? Who decides what the value of crude oil is? Who decides what the value of a dollar is? Is it the amount that's printed on the note or the coin? Or is it a convention? So, if someone has lots of cash, does that mean they're rich? Ask yourself this question. Just because you've got lots of cash, just because you've got lots of property, does that mean you're rich? Because people think that it is richness that makes one happy. I don't say all, but some do. In fact, a lot of people do. That it is wealth that makes one happy. Is it though? When it's a convention. Now at this point you might say, well, but Bhante, generally speaking, the value of wealth does not fluctuate by all that much within a person's lifetime. So why are we dealing with this? So surely it shouldn't be a problem. Okay, I'll give you that. But think about what's happening right now across the world when things go up and down in value. Cryptocurrencies, when they first came out, they had absolutely no value. No one cared for them or cared about them. But fast forward a few years, it shot up in value like a rocket 
right? And then someone who had lots of it and thought to themselves, ah, just pointless, meaningless things. Fast forward a few years and they've all of a sudden become multi-billionaires. How does that happen? How does someone who feel or who believe that they own a major stock in a company, let's say a blue chip company or a well-regarded enterprise, and they feel that you know they are a corporate magnet, that they are millionaires, billionaires, because they own a large stock, a sizable stock of a very valuable company. Overnight, things can change, can't they? In a matter of weeks, in a matter of days, in a matter of hours. They could go bankrupt, no? Of course. Why? Because it's all convention. These things are conventional truths. Therefore, you must understand that if you hang your happiness on the hook of a conventional truth, you will forever live in fear. Because these conventions will always fluctuate. You are not in control of your happiness there. This brings us to why I am in a rope today. I said these questions were very worthwhile questions asking right when we started these talks, but I said I will bring you answers in due course. I'm in ropes today because I understand this truth, that conventional truths and the happiness that I thought it brought them today is meaningless to me. I do not seek happiness from conventional truths, from thinking to myself that I have property does not make me happy, or that I have wealth, or that I have a car or cars, or maybe a, a ship or a yacht, or maybe a jet, or maybe lots of cash. Cash can buy stuff, yeah, sure. But then again, it can uh, again only buy stuff that has conventional value. So when we discussed where is the real value on one of these talks, I explained to you this concept. So today I have come to a point where I realize because this is a mind and a body we are talking about, as we discussed last week, this is what I really am rather than who I am. If what I really am are a mind and a body, then happiness should be found which satisfies and fulfills these two things. If I convince myself that I am what people tell me who I am, and then they get to decide who I am. For instance, if I believe that I'm a teacher, and it's they who decide that I'm a teacher, or let's say if I believe that I'm beautiful, I'm good looking and I'm handsome, and if people decide that I am so, then if I place my happiness on such factors, I am wholly dependent on other people keeping me happy. I don't like that and I don't want that. I don't want a happiness that even you can control. I don't want you to either. 
But for as long as we allow conventional truths to control our life and to determine when we are happy, we will forever be in a miserable state of mind because these things always change and they will forever change. Change is a part of all conventional truths. It is part and parcel of it. It is intrinsically entwined with it. You can't separate change and a conventional truth. It is part of what it is. It is part of perhaps why it is appealing to people. When something is in, has a lesser value, people buy it in the hope that it will go up in value. So you expect it to change. But then on the other hand, something you buy goes down in value, then you're disappointed. So you see, you didn't decide whether it was going to go up or down in value. It was other people. But you allowed yourself to place your happiness on that conventional truth and therefore you made yourself susceptible to the ups and downs. And you've allowed other people to call the shots of happiness in your life. So I think you get the gist of this. Whereas an absolute truth is not so. Absolute truth is that this is a mind and this is a body. Right? You and I, we are no different in that sense. And it's not just human beings, animals, bird and beast, mind and body. So where there's mind and body, if these are the two things that really and truly exist, it only makes sense to actually seek happiness to satisfy these two things, doesn't it? We have a body and a body needs to be satisfied, obviously, I agree. But not through the seeking of carnal desires, not through seeking infinite pleasures, not through seeking sensual pleasures, because again, what is sensually pleasurable <laughs> is a convention. The body never sought sensual pleasure. No. We know now that it is the mind that seeks this. What does the body need? Food, shelter, medicines and clothes. These are the four requisites. So when I do a merit transfer at the end of these talks, you will have heard, you'll have heard me say, let us take a moment to transfer these merits to those who sustain the Mahasangha. Who is the Mahasangha? This is the congregation of all monks, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis throughout the world. And I represent the Mahasangha. There are those among you who, through your generosity and for the sake of merit, not because you sympathize, that would not be very meaningful. It is for the sake of merits, because we know what we give is what we get. We need to discuss that topic in great detail at some point in future. But there are those among you, most of you even, who understand the value of merits, and therefore you sustain the Mahasangha through the provision of these four things. Because these four things are things that the body cannot do without. They are indispensable. 
Take away one of those things and you won't live forever. Not forever, you won't live for very long. Of course you won't live forever. But you provide this in the hope that, and in the belief that the Mahasangha or the monks and those people who are engaged in the practice of the Dharma are striving to train their minds to understand the Four Noble Truths, the Absolute Truths, and therefore find true freedom. And of course you understand that when someone has achieved that or is in the process of achieving that, kindness, goodness and the well-being of all humanity is something that must grow and develop in their hearts and minds. And therefore, out of mercy, they share that happiness. They share the path to happiness with others. As I myself am doing with you, and every member of the Mahasangha is committed to do with people just like you. I was once one of you, and you, perhaps in future, will be one of me. So we fulfill our duty to each other through our duty of care, which we talked about in the past. But these four things, why? Because these four things are necessary for the body, which is an absolute truth. It is not a convention that you and I have a body. I have a body and that is not a convention. It matters not whether you agree or not. It matters not who agrees or not. The president of the country or the king of the state cannot all of a sudden decree that no, you do not have a body. And from that moment, the body does not cease to exist. Oh, how I wish. <laughs> because then I would not have to sustain this thing, this this body, by providing it the four requisites, I'd be free, even more free than I am now. Won't I? So, unfortunately, that is not possible. It is only possible by freeing the mind first. How we do that, how we get about that, we'll discuss in, as we move forwards on our journey. So, that is about the body. Enough about that because I think that is pretty obvious and most people understand this. But then the other aspect of this ultimate truth is the mind. The mind has to be made happy because the mind deserves to be happy. Much like the body, the mind deserves to be happy. These two things deserve to be happy because these two things are the things that, things that really exist. So, it is a meaningful activity. It makes sense to exert energy to make these two things happy because they really and truly exist. This is where we got to last week because I asked you the question, who are you? And then we realized that it was not a meaningful question to ask because it's others who decide that. So really, <laughs> the point being, who you are is not a question that I can ask you, really, is it? It's a question I should be asking people around you. Who's this guy? And then they'll say, whatever. It's my dad. It's my husband. She's my wife. She's my daughter. My granddaughter. My aunt, my niece. Oh, she's the boss, right? 
He's the manager. He's the king. He's the prime minister. And so on. He's a doctor, an engineer. The university decided that you were going to be an engineer. Right? So you know the drill. Anyhow, it makes no sense to ask who you are because you're not going to get a definitive answer. You're going to have to say yourself, Pante, I don't know him, honestly. Please ask people around me. They'll tell you who I am. And this is why when someone gets angry, you know, they ask the question, don't you know who I am? Who do you think you're talking to? Don't you know who I am? Have you not heard people say that? Because it upsets them that they don't know who they are. I mean, just think about it. It is proof again that who you are is a conventional truth. Because you expect someone to perhaps talk to you respectfully because of the title you hold or your superiority to them, for instance. Now, what if they don't know that? What if they don't know that? What if they don't know that you are their superior? That you are their boss? You are their boss's 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 boss. Perhaps they don't know that. Or your place, your status, your position in that social circle or in society. That's why you are led to ask the question, how dare you talk to me like that? Don't you know who I am? The fact that you say that, if you say that honestly, then you must understand that it is possible that they don't know who you are. In other words, who you are is what they know you are, right? Not who you really are. See, whichever way we look at it, if we look at it through a wise pair of eyes, as in through insight, we realize that these conventional truths are simply a concoction that we have come up with for day-to-day -day existence and sustenance. It, is not, it doesn't mean anything. Nothing substantial. It's purely for our existence on this planet while we are here. We didn't come into this world with it. We're not going to leave this world with it. It's simply something that we hold on to. Something that defines us for the duration of our lifetime here. It is not everlasting. Very transient. It's not going to be with you wherever you go, if you go somewhere. Even in your lifetime, it changes so rapidly. It's so susceptible to change. So, is there much sense in, in spending loads of time either learning about who you are or pursuing these titles, these accolades and professions and, you know, whatever people strive to achieve these days just for a mere period of time but instead if you focused on what you are that is what you'll always be it makes more sense to do that doesn't it and that is what I'm about that is what this talk is all about that is what this journey is all about understanding what we are I want to help you understand what you are so mind and body we understand the body and how to make it happy let's put that to a side let's focus on the mind now how much do we know about the mind? How much do you know about the mind? Medical science will teach you how a body comes into existence. Does it teach you how a mind comes into existence? 
Do you know? Is it something that has always been? I mean, they'll teach you how the embryo devises cells and has become you for science. But your thoughts, when do they start? Why do they change? Why do you think something now and think something completely different? In fact, sometimes maybe the opposite of what you've just thought a few minutes later. How does that happen? In a split second, you can be a completely different individual mentally. Your desires, your wants, your needs can change just like that. The environment that you're in defines and influences a great deal about a great deal who you are, what you want, where you want to, what you want to do with your life, where you want to go. But how does this work? What is the mechanism? What are the dynamics of the mind? How much do we know about this? How much do you honestly and genuinely know about this? I have a feeling that most of you, virtually all of you, I, I'll give you perhaps there are a few people among you who may have done some research and study into this, but I think you'll agree and admit that most of you will just turn up blank. Actually, Bhante, good question. I honestly don't know much about the mind. I know I have one, but I don't really know much about it. I know sometimes that it's difficult to make my mind up, whatever that means. What does that mean actually? Make my mind up. You know, when someone says, when you're in a, you know, when you're in a bad mood, or perhaps you've had a disappointment, or maybe you're in mourning, and someone says, you know, things happen, right? Just make your mind up. What do I have to do to make my mind up? What is making my mind up? Like you know how to mend a broken arm, a broken leg, right? When you, they put you on the operating table and then they fix you up. Sometimes it's a plaster, sometimes it's, a, it's, a, it's some sutures, right? And good as new. But what about making your mind up? How do you do that? Is that even possible? When people say, I've made my mind up, what does that even mean? What, is the, what are the mechanism? What is the mechanism behind it? How does it work? What, are the, what is the technical detail behind it? It's interesting because you've got one. That's why it's interesting. It's about what you are. No, no, not who you are. Who you are is a convention. Let's, we've, we've parked that. We've put that to a side. But what you are, what are you? I know that you know a lot about your body, but what do you know about your mind? Why is it that you like red apples and not green apples? Why? And how is it though that today you like red apples and not green apples, but someone can come and change your mind? Sometimes you are convinced that you're not going to change your mind on something right? Have you not had those situations? I'm convinced. No one's ever going to be able to change my mind on this. And then someone says, can I talk to you about something? Yeah, all right, go on. Ten minutes later, you've completely changed your mind. And now you're an advocate of the opposing view. How does that happen? 
You know, when you're so fixated, when you're so determined that this is what I hold true and it has to be the truth because I can see logic, there's, there's common, this is sense. Why, why doesn't everyone agree with me? Ten minutes later, half a day later, sometimes five minutes later, you've completely flipped. How does that happen? What's the rhyme or reason behind this? It's important we understand this. Why? <laughs> what else is there worth understanding? If you are mind and body, folks, tell me, shall we spend the rest of our lives understanding the economy or the political arena or how prices fluctuate or how continents are formed or how stars are formed and how they grow old and die as red dwarfs. Shall we spend time talking and discussing about those things? Or shall we try and understand what we are? What we really are? I think that is the intelligible question. That is what this series of talks is for. Let's focus on the mind then. What is the mind? Has anyone ever asked you that question? <laughs> what is the mind? Do you have a mind? Yep, got one. No question about that. Can you, have you ever changed your mind? Yep, done that. Can you make your mind up? Yes, I've done that. Can you try and not change your mind? I'll try. Right? But has anyone ever asked you? What is the mind? What is the mind? Do you have an answer to this question? Do you understand what the mind is? How does it come into being? Is it something that came into life from the moment you were born and is going to be with you until your death? The same mind? Or is it something that's forever changing? Now you know when the body is concerned, it is not the same body you were born with. I mean, size-wise is a, a very simple measure of that. You've changed so much. You're not the same person you were born. You've grown hair, parts of your body. Lots has changed. But what about the mind? Is it one mind? And besides, how is it that we all have the same parts of the body, but our minds are so different? I mean, there's more variety in mind than there is in body, isn't there? Identical twins, take for instance. They look alike. Even their DNA is similar. Physiologically, they are identical. But you can have twins who are polar opposites when it comes to the way they think. So that's what I'm saying. Psychologically, mentally, we are so different from one another. There may be things on which we agree, but I think there'll be lots of things where we disagree. 
But ultimately, is it not the mind that agrees or disagrees because of the views that it holds, because of the ideas that it holds? It's true. So, you know, when we talk about solidarity, when we talk about us coming together, when we talk about understanding who or even, okay, let's use the word who. When we are trying to understand who I am, who you are, shouldn't we really spend time understanding the mind? I mean, think about this for a second, right? People, being people, you know, they like to live with others. Friends, family, become a couple, I date, and at some point, you know, get married and start a family. How much do you know about your better half's mind? Do you know what she's thinking right now? You can look at her and go away and understand or know where she's looking right now, what she's physically doing right now, where she's going right now. You can guess her age. Hopefully you don't have to guess it. Hopefully you know her age. Otherwise you could get in trouble. But joking aside, right? do you know what she's thinking right now? Would it not be... Actually, I'm not sure. I was going to ask, would it not be nice to know what she's thinking right now? But I have a feeling most people go, no, Bhante. <laughs> but, right, forget your spouse for a second. Right, think about yourself. Tell me, what are you going to think about in five minutes from now? What are you going to think about in five minutes from now? You'll tell me, I'm going to think about uh, maybe perhaps in five to ten minutes from now, you're going to conclude the sermon, the talk, and then maybe we'll be doing a, a merit transfer. Then perhaps after that, I'll go to uh, wash the car or go for a walk or, you know, go and do the dishes, maybe wash, them, wash the laundry. That's what I'm going to be doing. Are you sure that's what you're going to be thinking, though, in five minutes from now? Can I not completely change your plan, your direction? Just through a few words. Couldn't someone just give you a phone call and change absolutely everything? Maybe something unexpected can happen. And then your thought patterns can, can change completely and entirely. The person that you've decided to get married, you have decided to get married, this decision can change in the next two minutes. Not just the person, but the fact that you want to get married can change in the next two minutes. And it might be that up until now, you've been with them, you've lived together with them, you've known them for over 10, 15, even 20 years, and you can change your mind. Thing is, you don't know how that happens. You don't know why that happens. Because we don't understand the mind. We understand very little about the mind. That is because we have not spent enough time understanding, learning, contemplating and comprehending the principles, the governing principles and the science of the mind which was taught by the Supreme Buddha. He has come into this world, he came into this world to teach us how the mind works, from how it 
begins to how it ends, to everything that happens in between, how it changes, how it jumps from one to another, one place to another, how it decides, how it thinks, all this. All of this, basically, half of what you are, half of what you are is what the Buddha came into this world to teach. People spend very little time trying to understand that and far more time than is useful and necessary trying to understand who they are and who other people are and all about conventional truths. So we need to understand what the mind is. What is the mind? Now some of this that I'm going to be sharing with you it will take a while for things to settle with you. That I'll agree and I'll admit. Because for someone who's new to this, it can take a while to accept this. Because I'm trying to share with you something that you will have to understand by looking at yourselves. So I can't lay it on a table and show you this. I can't dissect it and open it in front of your eyes. I can't take it apart piece by piece physically and show you as it happens. Right? But as you contemplate on these things, on the ideas and thoughts I'll be sharing with you, you begin to understand that this is so true. Because you will start to see the world through the things that I'm going to be sharing with you. And by world, I mean nothing and none other than yourself. Because we've spent our lifetimes trying to understand and study the world around us. It's high time we began to Focus on the one thing, the one person, the one individual who we've spent the least amount of our lives studying, getting to know. That is what you really are. So let me give you some facts. Although it feels as if there's one mind from whenever you can remember to your death. I, I'm not going to contemplate on any form of existence before your birth to any form of existence after your death. Why? Because as I promised, I'm only going to be sharing with you and talking to you about things that I can explain through science, through scientific logic prime and reason. And whilst I can do that, there's plenty of hard science that I can use to explain and, and logic that anyone who's intelligent enough can understand 
For that, I need to give you the basics first, the fundamentals. And that I can only do one part at a time. We only have an hour or so for these talks. So in the time that I have right now, I don't have enough time to share with you all the facts to convince you that there is an existence before birth and there is an existence after birth, after death. So because I'm not going to be proving to you or I haven't proven that to you yet, let's ignore that for the time being. Because I don't need to prove to you that you, are, you exist right now, thankfully. You know that you were born, you know that you will die, and you know that you are living between these two events of your life. So that is self-evident, and therefore I don't need to provide any proof of that, and therefore I can talk to you about that. Yeah, is that reasonable enough? That this is a philosophy, folks. So just like in science, in science class, you remember, the teacher didn't just come and throw a bombshell at you and said, stomach it. No. Science is a very different game. I've always trained myself to look at things scientifically. And that is how I fell in love with Buddhist philosophy. It's the best kind of science there is. <laughs> Believe you me, folks. The day you'll understand the world as I do today, you'll be the first to say that. But one step at a time. There's no rush, there's no hurry. Right? So let's talk about stuff that I have explained to you yet, as yet and things that I can convince you by showing you evidence. So, in this lifetime that you have, it may feel as though there's one mind that keeps changing. Because you must admit and, and accept that mind changes, right? That's why I say, let me know when you change your mind. We have that, you know, when we discuss and have a conversation with someone. You tell them something and they don't agree and say, let me know when you change your mind. Or you'll ask the question, have you changed your mind yet on that? Let me have a think about it. I'll get back to you. Meaning, I don't agree as yet, but my mind might change. I might change my mind. So, it might feel like there's a mind that keeps changing. Like some kind of a metamorphosis. So, what's the reality here though? Does a mind, does this one mind that exists change? Or if you look at it, if you take a deep dive and look at it more analytically, can I maybe propose to you for the time being that instead of one mind that keeps changing, it's thoughts that keep arising and passing away? So fast, so incredibly fast that it feels like it's just one mind that keeps changing. Now take, for instance, a light bulb on AC current. Because it's connected to an alternating current, you know that it switches on and off at up to 60 times a second, and therefore we say it's a 60 hertz frequency 
So it switches on and off at that rate. But because it's so fast, so fast that the naked eye cannot distinguish between two of those moments, you can't tell that this is happening. Is that not possible? Think about the possible right now. Until you're convinced, I, I always say keep an open mind and consider. Be considerate. I mean, not in that sense, not as in be considerate others, but consider these ideas. Instead of just completely discarding or disposing them, no, 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 no. That's not what I know is true and therefore it can't be true. You know, science is the first to tell us never do that. Just because something's not true today doesn't, something doesn't feel true today doesn't mean it is not the truth. If that were the case, you know, we'd, we'd have gotten nowhere with science. One of the first axioms of science is that science is only as true as it is today. Tomorrow, what we hold true, we must allow for that to change. Otherwise, it is not science. Because nothing is absolute in science. Things can change. And we allow it to change. That is a scientific method. So, if you are someone who is prepared to consider things, then I think we have a long way to go together. Because some of these ideas will be very new to you. And that's okay. And if you're okay. But why should you consider these ideas? Because I promise you, there's a promise at the end of this. There's a price at the end of this, folks. That's why. The price is ultimate happiness. Happiness that cannot be taken away from you. That is happiness that is unshakable. Happiness that is not dependent. Happiness which does not depend on whether other people around you, people who influence you, people who have a stake in your life, a happiness that not even they can alter, yours and yours alone. Don't you like that? Don't you want that? Don't you wish for that? That is why these ideas I invite you to consider. So, can you consider for the time being that this is not one mind that began at some point, as in birth, and the same mind that dies at the end, but it keeps changing. I mean, the changing part is pretty obvious to you because you know you change your mind, right? But it feels like it's just one mind, like one vehicle, right, that travels throughout your life and different passengers get in and out. It's that sort of thing that it feels like, doesn't it? But instead, what I'm proposing to you is, instead of there being one mind, what there really is are very discrete, individual thought moments. Thought moments that arise and pass away. There's no gap between two of these. The moment one passes away, another one arises. But this happens at such a rapid rate. It feels as if it's just one thing, one mind from start to end. And each of these thought moments 
or each of these mind moments are capable of accepting one object. By object, I'm not talking about these physical objects. I'm talking about objects that come through, through the five sense doors. The five sense doors are eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body. The five sense doors. There is one more, the mind on its own, but we'll come to that later. So let's not get bogged down in all that detail just yet. But I promise you, everything I will explain to you one at a time. So the five sense doors, what are they again? Eyes, ears. So the eyes, we take the pair as one. Eyes and the pair of ears as one. So ears, nose, tongue, and body. These are the five sense organs. And these five sense organs bring inputs from the outside world. They feed these inputs through a mechanism, a biophysical mechanism. So I'm not going to get into the detail of that, how the nervous system works and how the, the chemicals work to propagate the electrical signals through the synapses and all that. You know, I'm not, I'm not talking about that and how the brain works. You know, I'm not talking about that because the brain is a physical, physiological thing. It's an organ that is a physiological part of the body. But we're talking about the mind. So you'll have to agree that when we separate what you are to the two parts, mind and body, the brain cannot be the mind. The brain has to be the has to be part of the body. The mind is not something that you can touch. Is it? The mind is not something that you can see through your eyes. You can look at a brain. There's plenty of that if you go into a laboratory of you know human bodies and specimens of body parts. You know, my dad used to be a science teacher. At home, he used to have a, a brain in formalin, in a box. And he used to use that to teach how the body works to his students. So it's, uh, the brain is something you can see, something you can touch, something you can smell, taste even if you wanted to. But the mind is not something like that. The mind can only be observed through the mind itself. That is the only way you can look at the mind, through the mind itself. But each mind moment, each mind moment can hold, accept, interrogate, observe. I'm using lots of words in the hope that one of these will make sense to you. And whilst they may not all be synonymous, they generally convey the same meaning. So the mind, each mind moment can acknowledge an object. An object is an individual, discrete element of data that has been brought to the mind through the mechanism that is the eye, the ear, nose, tongue, or body. 
that is the mind. And lots of these, many millions, billions, trillions of them, arise and pass away in a matter of a second. They are so fast. The Buddha, on one occasion, gives an analogy. Someone asks the Buddha, how fast is the mind? And he says, I can't give you a number. But he says, I'll give you an analogy. He said, he said, sorry, he, he, he said, I'll give you a simile. He said, imagine a river flowing very fast, a really fast flowing river. And he asks, if you can imagine a drop of water midstream, how long does it take for one drop of water to move from where it is and to be replaced by another drop of water in a really fast flowing river. You can imagine that it's impossible almost to give a number. Perhaps if you are interested, you can maybe do some physics, work, it out, work out the math and come up with a number. Right? How fast does it take? And in the matter of a second, a really fast flowing stream of water how many drops of water might flow in one tiny stream? And he says the mind is much faster than that. What he means by that is these mind moments or these thought moments, they arise and pass away even faster than that. And each of these thought moments can accept an individual object. Again, by object I mean the output of the process that is seeing. Let me repeat and emphasize that. The output of the process that is seeing. Or the output of the process that is hearing. The output of the process that is smelling or tasting or touching. Each of these processes, they have an output. And that output is the object which the mind receives. So, this is what's really going on. Now, I'll give you one more bit of detail for today. Because I don't want to dump all this or bombard you with lots of stuff to bamboozle you with too much information. But instead, I want to help you take this one step at a time. But I'll give you one bit one more bit of detail. A thought moment or a mind moment must have a purpose to arise. Because if this is not a single mind that, is, that has been there from birth to death, and according to this proposal that I'm making to you, that these are a vast number of individual and discrete thought moments that arise and pass away, they must have a purpose, mustn't they, to arise. And that purpose, what is that purpose? It is not to disappoint, make you sad, make you happy, none of these things. The mind moments in their purest form. I'm not talking about the various layers that can get added on them. We'll talk about that later. For the time being, let's try and understand this. That a mind moment, a thought moment, arises with one purpose. And that one purpose is 
to perceive the object that was brought in to the mind from the five sense doors. Once again, the purpose of a thought or a mind moment to arise or for, for it to come into being, the whole purpose behind it is to perceive. And this perception is a topic that needs to be discussed over several episodes. I mean, it's, it's, a, pro, it's, a, it's a topic that deserves a whole series of talks on, for itself. But for the time being, you know, you, you can conjure up what it, whatever it means when you, when you think of perceive. That it's not just observing something, it's, you know, it's, it, it's to do with how, you know, how you interpret and, and there's, there's quite a bit of deep thing, it's, there's quite a bit of activity that goes into perceiving something and the purpose of a thought moment is to perceive an object. So you can imagine this is like an octopus an octopus with its tentacles. So imagine there's an octopus, so it really wouldn't be an octopus, but a, perhaps a pentacus, <laughs> right? Let's imagine an octopus, but with just five tentacles. And each of these tentacles would be stimulated by an external input. A signal would travel across the tentacle and through to the body mass that is at the center of this animal's body. In much the same way, the mind or these mind moments receive these stimuli that come from the five sense doors and it arises to receive and to perceive those mind moments. And as soon as they've done their job, they pass away, as in they die. And then a new one is born. A new one is born to perceive the next object. There'll always only be one object at any given time. So there'll only ever be one thought moment at any given time. There's never going to be two and two will never overlap. There's only ever going to be one. One mind moment whose purpose who was born to receive and to perceive uh, an object, an object that was captured through the five sense doors. And one thought moment can only capture, can only receive and perceive one object brought to it by the five sense doors. So by virtue of that, so I'll leave you a bonus, right? I promised you Another fact about that, this, this, let's consider it a bonus. If you've, if you've hung around with me up to, up to this point, then you know, you're either, you really haven't got anything better to do with your time or you're really interested in this, right? Either way, well done. So I'm going to give you a bonus. Although it might feel that you're watching me and listening to me at the same time, with my explanation, that I've just given you, where you cannot have two thought moments arise at the same time. There cannot be an overlap. And the purpose of each thought moment is to receive and perceive just one object from one of the sense doors. 
although you feel that you're watching me and listening to me at the same time, now it must be clear to you that that is not the case. It cannot be the case. But instead, what's really going on is they're happening at such a rapid rate that you feel like you're watching me, listening to me, both at the same time, simultaneously. But that's not how it works. Right, I'm going to leave you with that for today because that was quite a bit, a bit in the deep end, right? And perhaps it was a bit heavy, but next time round, I'll draw out some of this on, on a screen and hopefully that will help you better visualize this information. We've talked about these concepts in our previous talks, before this series of talks. So if you wish, you're welcome to go, back, go and refer to some of them, but you don't have to because in this series of talks, we'll continue to talk about this and I'll shed light on this, on this, on this principle, on this theory and on, the, on this teaching of the Buddha, all with one purpose, to achieve ultimate happiness. I'll shed more light on this as we, as we progress and move forwards. So I promise you that. So you don't have to go back and watch episodes from or recordings from previous talks done outside of this series. So the point of this series is to take you to that destination which is ultimate happiness. And once we've gotten there, that'll perhaps be the conclusion of this series. But to get there, we need to understand these principles. So I'm going to leave you with that for today. Well done if you stayed there, listening to all that. I understand it was a bit heavy, but you know it'll all come clear and it'll all make sense to you. All you need to have is to be prepared to consider new ideas, new ways of thinking about things, and to be receptive to new pers pers perspectives. And if you're happy to do that, then well, you know, you will be rewarded. So, on that note, we will conclude for today. We'll continue the conversation next week and take some more time and examples and also some visuals to help us piece all this together. All right, so before we conclude, let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired and bring this talk to a conclusion. All right, so let us take a moment to transfer the merits we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting period, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching. And with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasikas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the Noble Lineage, in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the Noble Path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries, who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and all other monks resident at this monastery, as well as the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out, out, out with others, or inviting others to join them. May to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plain, 
redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane. Mates with the power of these mates, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May to the power of these maids, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer maids to our mothers, fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employees and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us, and assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these maids, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles through their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer to the devas, brahma, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambhudasasana. Let us also transfer to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may to the power of these merits they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transmit to our ancestors and to those who have predeceased us, to all who have been our families, friends and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara, and to those who have helped and supported us and assisted us in every way, shape or form they could. Let us also transmit to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force, who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations, and may all those who have lost their lives in the wars be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits we have acquired today. Let us also transfer to all those who have lost their lives in the natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics, reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey in Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to them. And may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the warful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that may through the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And may through the power of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, you and I, and everyone who's, who's helped make this program a success, become an arahat unvahanse, an arahat teranin vahanse, in this very life itself, and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And on that note, we will conclude today's talk. Looking forward to continue our conversation next week. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.